The psychedelic revolution is here. If you want to integrate your visionary experiences into your purpose, get clear on your entrepreneurial path and help people while you do what you love, then this podcast is for you. Welcome to The Psychedelic Entrepreneur, medicine for these times. I'm your host, Beth Weinstein. I'm a spiritual business coach, three-time entrepreneur, and a lifelong student of psychedelics and sacred plant medicines. You carry your own unique medicine, and your medicine is what we need for these times. This podcast will help you to share your medicine so you can create transformation in the world. Listen in on conversations with psychedelic leaders, change makers, and conscious entrepreneurs who are living proof that a better world is possible when you follow your heart and live in alignment with your soul. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm so honored to be having Dr. Rosalind Watts with us, coming to us live from the UK. Hi, Roz. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So Dr. Watts is a clinical psychologist and the founder of Acer Integration. Her contributions to the field of psychedelic therapy are numerous and include the development of the ACE model, Accept, Connect, Embody, which has been used in clinical trials of both psilocybin and DMT, as well as the Watts Connectedness Scale, which is a psychometric tool for measuring outcomes of psychedelic therapy. Dr. Watts is the former clinical lead on the Psilocybin for Depression trial at Imperial College of London and sits on the clinical advisory board of the USONA Institute. So Dr. Watts, I would love to hear your story. Um, how did you get onto the path of you know, becoming a researcher and a therapist? And I'm curious, did you used to have a different career? Or was this something you just knew you were going to do as a kid? Oh, thank you. Um, so when I was growing up, I wanted to be a barrister. I wanted to be a human rights barrister because I'm quite kind of argumentative by nature and always like having the last word, my mum would say. So I was always quite kind of um, outspoken, um, I would say, and kind of, <clears throat> yeah, interested in debates and interested in justice as well, I think. So Psychedelic therapy was the last thing I thought I would do, but it is kind of linked in a way, I think, because I ended up working as a clinical psychologist because I changed my mind about being a barrister because um, I did some work experience with uh, in, in, in court and I was asking all sorts of questions to the barrister that I was apprenticing with about their life story and their history and why they did the things they did. And the barrister said, you need to be a psychologist, not a lawyer, if you're asking all these questions. It's not about why they did it, it's about if they did it. And I was like, yeah, but, but what about their childhood? You know, why, let's go back to the roots of this. So so became a psychologist and then I guess came back to psychedelic, came to psychedelic therapy because, because of the same thing around, I guess around kind of justice really, because I realized that the healthcare systems we have are not were not fit for purpose, and I was working as a psychologist within this system that was really not effective for most people. And the, the waiting lists were really long. The, the 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 methods we had were quite ineffective for many people. And so then, when I heard about the psychedelic research into depression, and I had my and my best friend actually had her own ayahuasca experience to treat her depression, it was like oh finally something that actually 
has the power to bring healing, not just to individuals, but communities. And so the kind of reasons why people might end up committing crimes and end up in prison, maybe we can get there before that happens. Maybe we can bring the healing in at a younger age. So I've kind of come full circle in a way. Oh, that's incredible. I love that. And now I'm curious about your psychedelic experiences that you've had. Were you already in the psychedelic world and then had the experience or had you had an experience, you know, a while ago? And I'm curious how it affected the work that you do. Well, when I was a teenager, I had experiences of the kind of the culture of raving and, you know, which is, is not so much, it wasn't psilocybin, but I had a kind of insight into that world and I saw how talk about connectedness it was such an amazing community there was an absolute sense of people caring for each other looking out for each other and it was a beautiful thing to see it really was it was kind of the tail end of the 90s and I think I I carried something that with me then I kind of went to university and carried on with my kind of um, career and became a bit more sensible but then when I, when I was studying my English literature degree, um, magic mushrooms were legal in the UK for a short while. And I lived above a, a magic mushroom shop that was called, um, it, was in, it was in a city called Birmingham and the shop was called Amsterdam of London. So very confusing name. But my friends and I would, would basically do psychedelic therapy with each other at the weekends. We would just put the mushrooms on a pizza, sit around and talk about our mothers. So I had this kind of early experience of university of like rave culture and mushroom pizza, psychedelic therapy with my friends, but it was just this little burst. And then I never really thought of it as something that would be incorporated with my career. I didn't even know that people did MDMA therapy or, you know, psilocybin therapy. But, but I, I carried it with me. I never forgot it. I carried with me that memory of it. And then when I was, I mean, then it was decades later. Well, so that was when I was kind of like, you know, 19, 20. And then when I was 33, I had my daughter and I was on maternity leave. And I suddenly had some time. Clinical psychologists in the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK, don't have any time to ever do anything outside of work because you're so exhausted at the end of the day. But I had some time to like, read papers and read books and and I, I found out about the psilocybin research so when I realized that psilocybin was being used in clinical settings something in my body was like yes because I knew from my own experience how beautiful those experiences could be wow I love that story and by the way, I was totally part of that whole rave culture in the 90s, too. And I think, it, you know, it's funny to look back and say, well, all these recreational drugs really did something because I saw the same thing. It's like, OK, we all got along. I made like good friends just from like bumping into them in the bathroom, you know, <laughs> like, I, you know, and it's that seems to be a, a huge missing uh, piece in our culture right now where so many people feel disconnected. They feel alone, even though we're technically we're connected right social media and the internet but everybody's feeling like there's so much depression and anxiety and trauma and people just desire this need for connection um i so i love this story thanks for sharing so i want to get into a little bit of the background around the research that you were doing um because i you know i know little bits and pieces but 
I did not know you were part of DMT research, mm. which I find very fascinating because it seems to have been researched a little less than, say, psilocybin or MDMA. But yeah, what was involved in the research or what part did you play in the research on psilocybin and DMT? So um, <clears throat> varying kind of roles. The, the first psilocybin, so I've been involved in three trials. The first trial was um, I was a guide. I was in a guide in the sessions. And this was straight after I had my my daughter and I discovered the research and I was like, you know, I was on maternity leave from my job in the NHS, but I had time um, to go and volunteer. So I was a volunteer guide. And that role was just fascinating because I wasn't, it, it, was, it wasn't so pressured. I, I was just going in to meet the people, the participants on a prep session, sit with them in the, in the psilocybin session, hold their hand, be with them if they wanted to hold a hand and then be there in the integration sessions. And it was just a real privilege to really be involved in that kind of way because I got to really learn and enjoy without there being too much pressure. Then the next trial, I I was essentially leading it. So I was on the ground. I recruited the team, trained the team, delivered, designed the therapy model, which is the ACE model, except connecting body. Um, guided lots of people myself. It was a very, very 360 degree kind of, you know, I didn't do the kind of like data inputting stuff, but everything else, it was, it was very salon. And that I loved, I loved the creative freedom of being able to design the therapy model, but it was incredibly, incredibly high stress and incredibly high pressure. And the lot, the hours were very long would sometimes guide two patients. I would sometimes guide two patients in a week. So what, like Monday, preparing the first person, Tuesday, sitting all day with them in the psilocybin session, Wednesday morning, doing integration for the first person, and then Wednesday afternoon, meeting the second person, going straight from integration to prep for the next person, <clears throat> sitting all day the next day. And then by the time Friday came around, I was just an absolute zombie. So that, and that carried on for like a year and a half. Oh my God. Yeah. I want to ask questions about that because, um, I say there's so many people that glamorize, you know, sitting and being a psychedelic facilitator or underground therapist or above ground. And then there's the reality, which is, you know, you're sitting for hours and hours and hours and hours, right? My, my back will never recover <laughs> from, from literally just kind of sitting like, sitting for so many hours yeah I and mean, it's really physically demanding when you do and you're just sitting there maybe taking notes or yeah and it's it's one of those things where I mean it's also wonderful and a privilege and, and lovely but you know you're yeah. you you know you know your presence has you have to be present you have to be aware of what's going on but not too uh, you know kind of not intervene too much and it's it's um, it's just very tiring, like emotionally exhausting. At the end of the day, I was, yeah, really. I think you know, it's the kind of thing where guiding one person every two weeks or something would feel for me about the right amount of, um, about the right pace so that I could really be present. But two people in a week is like, that's a kind of Western timescale of like conveyor belt, Let's keep going. You know, we, we can't sully this way of working with the toxic work ethics of our system. 
Yeah, and this is interesting because I've said, I mean, because I agree that there's only so many people you could see in a week. I mean, especially if you're doing, let's say, psilocybin work. Um, But, you know, I've actually done the math on this to make, let's say, what we would call here in the U.S., maybe like a thriving income or some, you know, livable, Mm -hmm. but like not just living wage, but like a thriving wage income, um, you know, like if you do the math, it either means really expensive therapy or cramming people in and charging less, but then potentially getting burnt out. And you actually mentioned this as an NHS um, psychologist, which I have seen just from my own therapy clients over the years, that it's very easy to get burnt out, especially when you're, you know, trying to make it, trying to make a decent living. And, you know, you have to see like 30 clients a week in order to make here in America, like what we would call like a really good salary or good income. You know, have you seen this over the years? And how do you suggest people deal with this? Like, how are we going to have psychedelic therapists if they only see someone once every two Mm. weeks? You know? Well, I feel like we may have to move to two different models. I think group work has so many benefits. I mean, I'm, in a way, I'm kind of speaking about something that I, because I always worked in a you know, one patient, two guides scenario. But I know that people get a lot from group group sessions as well when they're safely held. And I think those become much more um, kind of sustainable. And if we had some kind of hybrid model where rather than being in a kind of ceremony where like you're left on your own, there's songs in a language that you don't understand. Although nothing, I mean, the shamanic model, it can be incredible, but for some people it's like going to be too off-putting and it's not going to resonate with where they're at. And they, 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 they might find some of the rituals also a little bit scary and spooky and it's just not going to be for everyone. But if we could have some kind of model where you have, um, you know, a couple of, a couple of therapists, couple of assistants that are learning to be therapists. So they, they actually, you know, they, they're apprenticing, so they don't need to be paid very much. In, in fact, it's their training. So maybe they, they pay you, I don't know. I mean, maybe we could do it that way. And then, or at least, you know, it's just very low pay, but then you have a system where people are in a group. And if somebody really needs support from an individual, there's another room where they can say, I need help. And one of the therapists goes with them or, you know, one of the therapists and one of the assistants go together and you provide the individual support for that person at that time. I think that kind of hybrid model of like a group, but with the capacity for one-on-one support. Um, And there are just so many ways we can do integration as groups as well, group-based integration, community, grassroots stuff. You know, I think, you know, joining a tree planting group with a load of other people that you've been on this journey with is probably, and you can walk and talk and talk about your process. And whereas you're planting the trees, you know, doing some exercise, getting out in the world, we can be creative about the kind of modalities that we use rather than having one person in a room with one therapist, which is always going to be tiring, um, in a way for both parties and expensive for one. And yeah, kind of, as you say, it's hard to make a living doing that as well. Yeah, this will be very interesting to see how it plays out because I know there's a lot of people who really, um, you know, just imagine like, oh, I'm just going to make money by 
holding space for someone and I'll just see like five people a week. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I agree. It's it's you're going to potentially get burnout very quickly. Um, but this is also why I think a lot of people are turning to, let's say, integration coaching or a hybrid of maybe doing preparation integration with, you know, maybe less actual medicine, um, you know, maybe for what they call healthy normals, which I personally hate that term, but we all know what it means. <laughs> Versus versus someone with like, a, you know, um, treatment resistant depression or something. But let's talk about your, you know, you have this ACER program and, you know, you're teaching people about integration. And I'm curious, you know, what is ACER and how is it different than, let's say, just, you know, a random integration circle that I can find mm-hmm. online? So it's, I always really struggle to dis- describe it because there's kind of so many parts to it. It's like, a, it's quite a, but I'll do my best to give you the kind of quick um, summary. So essentially it's a year long process that people sign up for 12 months and we take, we, we have cohorts of people. So we have a kind of summer intake and then a kind of winter intake. <clears throat> and when people join, we have this structure of going around the, the 12 months of the calendar called the 12 trees. And every month we have a different tree and each tree has a different lesson. And all of the lessons are around either connecting to self, connecting to others or connecting to nature and the, the wider world. So for example, we're in, are we still in May? Yeah, we're still in May now when we're doing having this conversation, although it probably won't be when this goes out there, but right now it's May. And our tree is the Douglas fir, beautiful Douglas fir tree. And the Douglas fir in our community is a metaphor for local community connection because the Douglas fir in Douglas fir forests, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> um, it, I don't know if you've read the book Finding the Mother Tree by Suzanne Simard. It's one of the most beautiful books I could ever recommend to anyone. Finding the Mother Tree, it kind of, it's about trees and forests and the way the forest communicates underneath the ground, the mycelial connection between the trees, these networks of support and reciprocity and care, the way the trees send signals and minerals. But it's about, it's really about looking at the old ways of extraction and individualism and kind of corporate growth versus the way of the forest, which is cooperative, interconnected web of life all working together. And so I could talk about that forever, but I'll try and keep it at that. So the Douglas Fair is about the interconnections between the trees of a forest and how we can learn from that. So thinking about where we live, and it's like, who takes my rubbish out? Um, who makes the, the bread that I eat? Who are my neighbors? And, and often we find that a lot of it isn't in our local community, but some of it is. You know, we can, we can go local. We can visit our neighbor. We can start getting products from something local and we can start projects as well we can start initiatives so this month in ASA we've had lots of people starting little or big things in their local community even if it's just getting to know the person that gives you your coffee every morning to say like hey you know what's your name you know just making those connections so that's May I won't go through all the trees but then in June next month it's the Hawthorne tree and that's about forgiveness it's about forgiving the self first, then forgiving other people, and then broadening out that kind of sense of um, letting go of old hurts. 
And again, I could talk about that forever, but the way we work on these trees in the community is we have a set process every month. So at the beginning of the month, so like say it was the, let's say June, Hawthorne. So in the first week, everyone receives a film and that's of, so I, I'm, it's kind of me with, with Hawthorne trees talking about the theme and the psychological underpinnings and research and ideas around forgiveness, but also thinking about the metaphor of the Hawthorne tree and the um, myths around the Hawthorne tree and why the Hawthorne tree represents, we call it blossoming the thorn, like letting the flower of love be softer and bigger than the spike of fear. So it's like, in a Hawthorne tree, you have all these little spikes, the, the, the thorny bits, and then in spring, suddenly these huge white flowers just explode over the thorns. So it's like how we've got the thorns we've got, we've got the wrongs that have been done to us and that we've done to others, and we carry them with us. How can we, how can we start a process where we, where we allow blossoms to kind of overtake those old resentments? So, so we have a film where we talk about whatever the theme is, and then through the course of the month, they have lots of different kinds of workshops where they work on that theme together, from breathwork sessions, sharing circles, guided imagery journeys, and they do that process. And then for every month, you go as a community onto the next tree. And the idea is at the end of the 12 months, you have kind of, you've internalized each one of these lessons. You've kind of been each tree. So you have a garden of all those trees and that every year when you come around to those months, you go a little bit deeper with that spiral. So next May, you're going to meet another neighbor. And next June, you're going to go a bit deeper with your forgiveness of yourself. So that that's basically the, the process. And, and what we really hope is that at the end of it, well, what will happen when people finish is that they, they will be part of a kind of never-ending community of people who are trying to bring connectedness into the world, whether through psychedelics or other means, and support each other and work in our local communities too and really try and bring in the new way that we want to see, which is collaboration, community, connectedness and care, rather than, as you said, disconnection, fragmentation, loneliness, you know, the corporate misery that has overtaken our culture. Oh, that sounds like such a beautiful program. And of course, trees are just pure medicine. Um, you know, I was going to ask, how do you bring in the the psychedelic element? I mean, obviously, it's like, to me, everything is psychedelic and you can just tap into their medicine, like you said, forgiveness or learning about the thorns. Um, but yeah, do you bring any kind of psychedelic specifics into this program? Well, our community is made up mostly of people that have had psychedelic experiences. So they bring it in themselves. So everybody is put in an orchard of 10 people that you go through the whole journey with. So you have the same people. So people bond with each other and share their stories with their, their orchard, their small group. But also in all the, the large group sessions, we have discussion of people's processes, which may involve that. But we also have every month, I hold a kind of integration psychedelic integration group where people come and submit specific questions around psychedelic journeys. And we have guest speakers who are retreat facilitators or researchers or, you know, a um, whole range of people. So, yeah, there is, there is a psychedelic kind of current through it, but we didn't want it to be, um, we wanted to hold the space for people that were interested but not actually taking psychedelics themselves. So it's, it's just one part of the whole. 
Ah, I see. That's it's beautiful. I love this. Um, and you know, I want to talk about what you mentioned this this connection and community, and you know, really stepping into this world of what we all see as possible, right? Like where we can collaborate, where we can actually not feel that place of disconnection that I think so many have felt, and it's kind of breaking now, right? Like especially if you're on this medicine path or working with psychedelics. And, you know, you had mentioned that you're going to speak on the BBC about, um, you know, rescheduling psilocybin there in the UK and mention also having community models. And community has come up so many times on this podcast um, because obviously it's like an essential piece of this experience that you have with psychedelics, you know, the connectedness, the connection to nature, the connection to one another, the the knowing that we're all one and that we are interconnected but then you go back to your real life and you know a lot of people just fall back to where they are you know where they were and nothing changes and stuck in the grind um yeah what are your views on this community model like what does that really mean and how you know what is your vision for the psychedelic space and how this oh, can thank go thank you it's such a lovely question and it it kind of means everything to me now having having been in the research world where it was all about you know the medical model and brain scans and questionnaire results and that was everything and and that, that that was wonderful in many ways but now you know years down the line what i really believe in is not any molecule it there's no more i mean i love you know plant medicines thank you plant medicines and um, all plants thank you all plants but my real belief for change it for humanity, which is the part of the ecosystem that needs to change because we're the part that's out of balance. Like everything else in nature is kind of working pretty well as nature does. There's just one species that's ruining it for everyone. For humanity to change, my, my faith is not in any one substance or plant or molecule. It is in our ability to come together as community and togetherness and, and allow those processes of meditation and plant medicines and so many different things to help and amplify that process. But it's the, it's the coming together again that will change it because it's our separateness from each other that is what is making us miserable. And most mental health problems really, when you, when you can't like drill down to it, it's like no wonder so many people are so unhappy because it's, we're, we're social animals. We're not built to live in these little boxes where we don't have a chance to, to regularly sit around the fire with a small group of trusted others who we've known for a long time, where we have connection to place, connection to the land, reciprocal networks of care. And yes, there are problems that come with that and there's conflicts that need to be resolved, but there's a depth to the roots. And we're just all cut off from the roots. We're just living in a completely cut off way. So I think the way community, like I see psychedelic medicine as being absolutely by the community for the community. It has to be that way. Because I, you know, I've seen the medical model and the, the, the benefits and all the pitfalls and all the complications and all the limitations of that. And I think there'll always be a place for a clinic. Yes, let's have a clinic for, for sure where a psychiatrist can deliver very medicalized care for people that want that. Great. 
But for an awful lot of people, let's have a beautiful center in an area locally that is supported by stakeholders, different stakeholders. You know, we have to be able to find a way of creating this in our communities and it has to be supported and perhaps, you know, even supported by some of those people that stand to make so much profit from psychedelics. Maybe they can also give some money back to infrastructure building and community building for other people. Because remember, you know, no one owns these these plants. In fact, you know, thinking about mushrooms, Maria Sabina had been happily, through her lineage, providing beautiful psychedelic healing. And then white man Gordon Watson, the banker, you know, basically takes them. And then we see a whole new era of many good things happening with that, but also the 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 taking of something that belongs to all of us and 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 you know synthesizing it and selling it and patenting it. So if we can have community centers where local people with different skill sets who are really good at holding space, they might not necessarily be therapists. They're just the safe people, probably the elders, probably the people that have lived many decades and maybe they were a nurse for a long time and now they're just one of those really dependable, trusted, earthy kind of grounded people those people, those are the people that I want to be giving people psychedelics. You know, it's, it's not about what piece of paper you've got. It's about your ability to be a safe pair of hands. And so we can have centers where those people who have proven through their communities over time, they've been known for long enough and trusted for long enough to be the ones that are given the, the kind of the access to these tools. And then let's let the communities organically and slowly develop mechanisms support structures like what does this community what does this community need to make this safe rather than some kind of mcdonald's franchise version of it where it's like you know drive through psilocybin therapy all the money going to a few shareholders whose value system is completely against the value system that we're trying to bring in i I, basically i think when you bring psychedelics into the existing system they don't change the system they just replicate and mirror it So we need to change our system so that we're ready to receive psychedelics because we're like, okay, we've, we've created the community support structures that humans desperately, desperately need and can't survive without that have been taken from us. Um, because of the, the the society, the the structure of the society we live in, we've brought that back. Now we're ready to introduce medicine, plant medicines into that structure. So it's like, for me, it's like community is the only way. Like there can be other ways too, for sure. We need diversity. But if we do it without that community-driven approach, we're, we're completely missing the point. Amen. Um, I know I share this exact same sentiment and I think it's really important and I'm so glad you're sharing this because I was talking to you before we got on camera here that, Um, This is a common concern for a lot of people in the psychedelic space is how are we going to get this right to develop models that really are inclusive and also, um, you know, the plants, these substances are for everyone. They're, you know, they're not to be just controlled and patented by like three companies where now it's, you know, three times the amount of money. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, how do we come to terms with this? Because um, there is a reality you know, at least here where I live in the U.S., um, from what I've heard, you know, Oregon is is now kind of there, meaning like some service centers have opened. 
And, um, you know, I don't know too many details, but I have heard that there's, you know, it's like regulated um, and regulated and somehow became more expensive. And, you know, you can only get it if you have a license, which costs a certain amount of money. And, you know, it's like this whole ordeal. And then, of course, because of the model where you you need someone to sit there for many, many hours, it tends to be very expensive. Um, and, of course, you know, it's like we do – people do see the benefit to having this and, and this movement. But how do we come to terms with, with trying to get this right? You know, because I've interviewed people who said, well, we do need some kind of regulation – but then I don't know. I'm I'm like, do we? I I don't know. Um, how do you come to terms with this? Like, other than pray. Like, I I pray very hard on this. But, um. <laughs> I was thinking that I was like, what do I? When I really like drill down to it, like my strategy is just like trusting in the unfolding of nature. Yeah. And yeah. but I think, but that you know takes time and is often quite messy. You know, there's winters as well as summers, so maybe we just need to go through a few winters. I think really. I think it's um, the ability to to learn from our mistakes. So in the clinical research world, there was just so many mistakes that, you know, that were happening. And I'm sure in the underground world, there are so many mistakes. And in the Oregon service centers, there will be so many mistakes. There will be mistakes everywhere because we do not have a lineage. We are all total new kids on the block here. Our, you know, our plant medicine using traditions got severed a long time ago. We don't know what we're doing. Like, let's just all admit, like, we're, we're learning and we're keen. And we, I mean, actually, some some of us have had lots more years of, like, you know, some people have have many decades of experience, but but we don't have we we don't have the tradition. So we're finding our way. And also, when people often when there is a new movement the pioneering spirit of some of the leaders that bring it in is counter to the kind of groundedness that is needed to hold it safely. So when you have those kind of renegade, like, you know, revolutionaries running ahead with something new, sometimes that personality type is very bullheaded and convinced of its own rightness. So we, we need the community, we need the circles of the grandmothers and grandfathers and just each other hearing, learning, being open and sharing. And I think crucially, we need to create a culture where we can share when we do things wrong. Because there's so much, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's so much like, oh yeah, psychedelics used to be illegal and stigmatized and everyone thought you got flashbacks from acid and it was really bad. But now psychedelics are perfect, they're brilliant, they're going to reset your brain in a minute. They're going to change your life. 10 years of therapy in a day. We need to legalize them right now. It's like, oh no, we, psychedelics are good now. And because of that storyline, it's like any problems with them. It's like, shh, rush down to the carpet. We, we're glossy. We're perfect. We don't have issues. So, and I can see why the pendulum has swung so far the other way because of where it was. But in order to, to, to kind of grow it, to, to learn, we have to acknowledge we'll all make mistakes. We need to be open about them and that those mistakes are, are are going to make us stronger if we can embrace them rather than avoid them. If we avoid them, they will bring down the whole thing. Oh, my God. I've, I've talked about this before about how there's so much, you know, I mean, not just in the psychedelic space, but 
a lot of spiritual spaces, you know, this bypassing of like, let's pretend that that didn't happen and maybe it'll just never happen again. But, you know, I see it as like, well, what if we have an open discussion and use this as an opportunity for growth and healing? But and it's been interesting and I'm sure you know about all of this or more. um, But, you know, especially when it comes to sexual misconduct and transgressions and, you know, we don't have a ethical code of standards right now yet. And even if we did, like there's no one regulating it. And, um, you know, to me, it's like humans will be humans. Like we can't forget that there's I, every human I know has an ego, yeah. whether we we like to admit it or not. And, you know, it's like I don't know if canceling is the answer. I don't know if brushing under the carpet isn't the answer, but you know, we have to be able to talk about it and learn in order to get this right, because that's the only way we're going to evolve into the right direction. So I'm glad you brought that up. And it's I've actually talked to a lot of people. um, Someone I interviewed recently said, oh, I just I just get canceled every time I say something that's maybe a little bit of like something we should talk about. And everybody just like shuts them down, you know, and that's unfortunate because that's not the point, you know, especially with psychedelics. It's like, we're supposed to be able to open up and have these hard conversations and maybe ground a bit and take it down a few notches. And you had mentioned, um, you know, this BBC uh, interview you're going on about like slowing it down a little bit. Um, And I've actually talked to a bunch of people over the years about like, well, this is moving very fast and maybe it's not always a positive thing. Maybe there's a way to actually like get this growing sustainably. Yeah, what are your views on this this idea of slowing down? And is it do you think it's possible that we can get like large venture capitalists to slow down? It's <laughs> a very good point. Um I I don't believe I, I sadly don't have much hope for being able to because you know the speed at which when profit runs the game and when written into the constitution of those companies is the the legal obligation to maximize profit, then there is no slowing down. So, I mean, that's why we're hurtling as a species to the edge of a cliff in a, in a van with no brakes, because it's written into the rules of the van that there can be no brakes. So it's like, I suppose, yeah, I just wonder whether there will be two separate movements, really, and that as the kind of, um, yeah, the grassroots movements will spring up, more community-based, I suppose, as psychedelics become more accepted and they're used for... In, a, in the kind of medical model way and it's understood by more and more people that they don't that they're relatively benign and safe when used carefully and properly that there will just be kind of self-organizing groups of people um and many of them will go wrong and many of the corporate offerings will you know will go wrong and there will be harms done and there will be boundaries broken and there will be you know psychedelics are such powerful amplifiers the work can be so messy and confusing and the potential for, you know, people are so vulnerable in that space, the potential for so many things, you know, I mean, it it felt like a high risk sport doing that that trial. And at the end of it, I was like, 
I was so glad that we were all okay. It's like, everyone's okay. And lots of people really benefited. It was like hair raising and often just not knowing what to do in a set, you know, when something really intense happened, just not knowing um, how to respond and then people going and not having any support afterwards. It's like, you know, it's, it's hair raising. So the bad stuff will happen for sure. But I do also think that we're starting now at least to understand that we need to develop a tradition and we need to develop good infrastructure and good systems of, you know, ethical regulation. I do think we need that as well. And and definitely, definitely slowing down. But I think, yeah, that all we can really do is start to form connections with the people we really trust Find the others, find the people that have the same ethical framework as you, good skills don't work about their competency level and crucially are interested in plant medicine because they believe that healing is needed and that is the route to healing and that they are one very tiny part of that healing and that they will make lots of mistakes and that they're humble enough to recognize those mistakes rather than I am a goddess and I'm here to save everyone or I'm going to make loads of money out of this, or, you know, power, I'm going to get powerful, I'm going to be popular, I'm going to be a rock star, status cool, like, there's so much social status that can come from being involved in this world. The psychedelic conferences are like, it's like, is that a rock? Is that a rock? Is that a is that Glastonbury Festival? Or is that a conference? Because it's like, you know, so... Find the people you resonate with and you trust and gently, gently start working with them, not with psychedelics, like, well, you can if you, you know, but, but start a local community meditation group or, you know, just start doing a tree planting group or a litter pick, like find connections of people and do something nice together and see how well you work together and build those connections and more people join and slowly, slowly you build a network of people that you really trust and know and then you've got your mycelial network you've got your little forest and then when medicine plant medicines become truly accessible you're like okay well, we've got our little corner of the world we don't know what those guys over there are doing but we've got our little corner and we know that we can work well together and we found a way of doing it in a way that's you know accessible and sustainable and just little groups of people doing it their own way i think but, but crucially with the other people that you, it's, it's all about having a good team, like a, a team of people that you trust. And it's hard in the psychedelics world because there is so much, you know, it's, it's hard to find um, the stability of a gentle, grounded team because it's a highly charged environment and there's high stakes and high prizes. So it's hard to find. But when you find your real allies, then that's the kind of slowing down we need. It's the relationship building. Because otherwise, these teams, these alliances form super fast. It's like, oh, I'm starting a clinic. I need a, a psychiatrist. I need a, some therapist. I need this. I need this. I need a website designer. Right, everyone come. And you have this like rag bag team of people that are all like, oh, you know, this is going to be amazing. And they're all doing their own psychedelic journeys and, you know, no one knows each other. And then stress comes into the system and the team just fragments and you have lots of conflict. Mm. 
And it's because it was a team that was brought together through intentions of like the next big thing and they didn't have the relational security of trust of long-term relationships to actually safeguard their their working their working collaboration mm. that's so, it's so good that you point that out because i think a lot of people don't even recognize that um and you know you mentioned this you know, people who feel in a place of power, I'm the one healing, like the the kind of the, the ego-driven way of getting into this. You know, this is what I say to my clients. I'm like, you always have to come back to like, why do you even want to do this? Why are you on this path? And are you really being of service or is there something in you that just whatever wants to be loved or wants to hold that position of power so people look up to you? It's like doing the really deep work to constantly keep yourself mm-hmm. in check, especially if you're holding that space as a facilitator, I mean, I've already heard, and I'm sure you have as well, so many horror stories, you know, even therapists, like they end up dating their clients and, you know, cross that boundary, you know, very quickly. And I mean, it's, I've now numerous, numerous. And, um, you know, it's an interesting world. And I keep saying like, we might have to see some nightmares, you know, to figure out how to get certain ethics in place and do this from, a real place of of healing and, like you said, like relationship in this community that's aligned, you know? Um, One question I had for you, because this has come up so much, you know, there's a lot of people that want to, let's say, step into the path of psychedelic integration coach. And there's, you know, there's training programs out there, but let's say they've been on this path for a long time or they've had a fair amount of experience and maybe they've done a lot of other spiritual work or their own healing or they're, you know, regular meditators and so on. And you had mentioned that, you know, this this grand vision of maybe sitting with people that are just experienced versus people that maybe have all the mm. training. Because this is something I've argued is that training, especially some of these trainings, is very are very brain-based. They're not really teaching you how to actually you know, have the experience of holding space or working with other human beings, but they're just, it's like book, book book-based. What do you think of that, especially if it's someone who just wants to go into, let's say, psychedelic integration coaching or some form Mm -hmm. of coaching that doesn't involve giving anyone psychedelics? Like, what are your views on having a certain level of training versus, you know, other embodied experiences? I think that's where community checks and balances come into place because, it's all, it's, for me, it's really not so much about the specific training. It's about the, the, the way of being of the person. So when I think about like, you know, if I was going to convince my mom to have a psychedelic therapy session, which she's never going to do, I've tried like, please, my, she's never going to say yes to that. If she said yes to it one day, and I was trying to think of who I wanted to be with her, it would not necessarily be somebody that had done this training or that training or had this qualification or that. I would choose the person with the kindest heart, the most patience, the most experience, and most able to, and and who'd seen a lot of different things, you know, the experience, experience and depth of kind of, you know, integrity and kindness. So those are the things, and, and we'd probably all choose the same people. Like if you fill the room with like 100 people, there would be some people, and we, we all had to like choose who we wanted to be our sitter. There would just be some people that have so much experience and a real way of being that you just feel safe with them. And you'd be like, I want to sit with that lady. You know, I want to be in her room. 
And there would be some people that we'd like really not feel comfortable with. And then if you look to see which one of them had this qualification or that qualification, like it would not tally. Like there's no rule to say that all the ones we thought were the best were the, were the psychiatrists at all. You know, it might be that the one we felt really safe with had been a, an artist or a carer, you know, or, or all sorts of different things. So I think, but having said that, because we don't have communities where we get to know each other and checks and balances and almost like get to vet each other and know who like the local kind, safe person is, we have to use other ways of like vetting. So the thing about therapy training, they're, they're so variable, but like my clinical psychology training, for example, I didn't learn anything in the actual course. I did three years, all the content of the stuff I learned, never going to use any of it. It was all cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm never going to do it. So many manuals and textbooks of stuff that I literally never even, like did the exam, closed the book, never to be opened again. The only thing, the only thing that my training course really did was provide a vetting service of me as a human being. Because over those three years, I had many, many, many different people check me, observe my tapes, listen to what my supervisor said, ask the clients for feedback. I was just like double, triple, quadruple vetted for three years. And at the end of that three years, I didn't learn anything about how I wanted to work. But it was like I could say to people, I've been like proven to be safe. I'm not going to do anything. Well, you can't prove, you know, there's never any total guarantees. But so I feel like what we need is some way of real deep community vetting to make sure someone hasn't broken boundaries or, you know, committed some kind of ethical, but it, but they don't have to be therapists. You know, it, it's, um, yeah. So that's going to be one of those new things that psychedelics are going to call us to create because we definitely can't just limit this to therapists. And we're gonna need real diverse teams of people offering this. And we're gonna to need to find those really safe pairs of hands in all sorts of different places. But we do need to vet them. And we do need to vet people for intention, power intention versus genuine care intention. So I don't know how we do that vetting, but we need to find, we need to find a way, I think. Hmm. Thanks for sharing that. And yeah, I agree. And it's, it's interesting. I'm in a, there's like a group I'm in that's just a whole bunch of facilitators. And I'm like, how do you guys refer each other if you don't actually know each other? <laughs> like, it's, it's kind of weird. I don't participate. I just kind of glance and it's, you know, I, that's where I feel like it's a wild west because they're just looking for someone anywhere in this one region. And that's how it goes is like by location. Yeah. You know, and then, of course, there's no responsibility if you recommend someone that doesn't turn out to be any good or e even causes harm. So very interesting world. We'll, we'll see what happens. But I'm glad you're doing this beautiful community work with your integration cycle and, you know, speaking about this because I think this is important. And yes, like keep causing <laughs> trouble, please. <laughs> so we're talking about going on, on on the news and I'm like yeah it caused some trouble <laughs> and being very outspoken which is yeah does get me into trouble sometimes but yeah I can't change it so <laughs> are you a Sagittarius I'm not I'm actually a Libra 
Are you a oh. Sagittarius? <laughs> yes. Because we're known for just being honest, you know, honest and outspoken mm. people. So I get I it. I should be a Sagittarius. <laughs> I need to check. Although I was actually born when my mom said I was born. <laughs> Well, let's get into what you have coming up. You know, tell people about your work that's, you know, next time your um, cycle is open, you know, what you have planned for the next six to 12 months. Is there anything that we want to know about to keep an eye on and on the lookout for? Um, so we, we're going to have our next, so the next people will start in kind of October time. So we'll be taking applications like, well, from now, like people can apply anytime by the website. So it's Ace of Integration, www.aceintegration.com. Um, and there's a there's a button on there where you can join the, the wait list, which is actually a mailing list. And my colleague and I said that we're a team of two. Then we have all of our facilitators because, oh, yeah, that's the other thing I didn't say. <clears throat> it's part of the process. We go through the 12 trees and we have lots of sharing circles to talk about the work that we're doing and different aspects of the process. And they're facilitated, but they're facilitated by people that have graduated from the 12 trees. So once you've been through the 12 trees, you can become a facilitator for the next people coming on board. So, yeah, so we have um, the team is is me and Lee, and Lee is my kind of wing woman. She does basically everything. <laughs> She's fantastic. And then we have a team of facilitators who did the first version of ASA, graduated, and are now facilitators themselves and they hold space for our current community so it's a small team um but yeah we, we do a kind of podcasty thing meanly where we talk through what the month has been like what it's been like on ASA and that gets sent to our mailing list so if people click on that button on the, on the website they'll get a monthly little podcast of us chatting about what we did in the community that month um, and we also are doing free webinars um coming up now every month which is a guided imagery journey and a chance to talk through some things and have a sharing circle um, to give people a taster of what it's like in the community. So yeah, you can look out for those. But if people sign up to the waitlist, then they will be they'll automatically be sent all this information. Beautiful. Oh, that sounds amazing. Well, I'll be sure yeah. to sign up and we'll have your links right here in the show notes so everybody can yes. keep an eye on it and hear all about it. But Dr. Watts, Roz, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your unique medicine with the world. And, you know, I, as someone who feels very similar to you, I'm like, please speak more publicly about this. I think it's a really important message. And I know a lot of people share the same sentiment. And, you know, we all have prayers that this psychedelic space really grows in the right direction because, um, you know, there's big stakes, you know, big things at stake for the the planet. Yes. So. Yes. Oh, thank you, Beth. It's lovely to, to chat with you. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're feeling inspired, I'd appreciate it if you showed your love with a review. And check out my YouTube channel where you can find the video version of this podcast. You can also head to BethAWeinstein.com to learn more about me and grab my free business growth trainings. Remember, you carry your own unique medicine and your medicine is what we need for these times.